0: Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth Barrett.
1: Good afternoon. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. And uh, I'm glad you're here uh, because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, Or at least I have a lot on my mind, and I'm hoping that you're excited to talk about it as well. So this week's show all started with an article that popped up, Uh, and the article is about interrupting and why being interrupted is so irritating. And just reading the article kind of took me down this path of thinking about the holidays and being prepared for the family gatherings. And I don't know if it's just always been my way as a clinician or my way as a human being or a member of my family, the dynamics within my family, but I always feel like I need to make sure the communication within the family goes smoothly so we can all have a good time. And... This article just reminded me that we are going to be gathering in a week, and the family gatherings, you know, are really limited. We don't get the entire group, cousins, aunts and uncles, parents together, often, a couple times a year at best, and so I want to make the most of it. And I want to make sure that everyone feels like they can be themselves and be represented and speak their mind and share who they are because I'm wildly fascinated by every one of the people that are part of my uh, family system. I'm interested in people in general. I mean, that's what I do. I really am interested in stories. And side note from even starting the show – this morning, I had to get some blood drawn for my yearly exam, which I, I don't like doing. makes me very anxious. My mouth gets dry talking about getting the blood drawn, and it's a lot of little vials of blood, but I won't go into details. But the person that was the phlebotomist this morning was very nice, and I said, I tend to get kind of anxious, and it makes me a tough draw. And So she just started chatting with me, which was very nice, asked me what I do, and I told her, and I said, I really enjoy listening to people's stories. And I found over the years that people quite often will say, well, my life is not interesting. I haven't done much. I I don't have much to share. Those people tend to be the most interesting to me because they don't even recognize all of the ways that they're really interesting and all the ways that they have their deep thoughts and personal experiences and views and ways of looking at the world that are super unique. People who Tent on the surface have really interesting lives who uh, have big stories and grandiose um, you know ideas of who they are and love to tell their stories. people that brand their stories and their life story to you know make a living or however they want to sell themselves. those stories tend to feel really manufactured after a while because we get so used to branding that story and wanting to represent ourselves in a certain way. People start telling their life story uh, in ways that are more um, mythological (laughs) than actually realistic. And so I tend to listen and i be respectful. And I love a good storyteller, just like anyone that's fun. But I'm really drawn to and captivated captivated by people who don't even see how interesting their story is, or that the mere fact that they exist in the world and have likes and dislikes makes them beautiful. And so that was my conversation this morning, because the person pulling my blood said, I I don't have very interesting life. I don't really agree with that. I I don't think I have much to say. And, And I said, well, what are you interested in? And she said, well, I just, you know, I do my work and I have my pets and that's about it. And I said, well, pet loving is a beautiful thing. I said, I I think the part that you're overlooking in all of your life is that you just made this entire horrifyingly uncomfortable, anxiety provoking experience for me super easy, just by naturally asking me questions and being attentive and being caring in what you're doing. And she just stopped and looked at me and she goes, well, I just, I just do that. That That's not very special. And I said, oh, you have no idea how special <laughs> that is. Um, not many people have that capacity to be empathic and utilize their skills in, in such a beautiful way. And so after that encounter, it just brought me back to thinking about my family system and my friends and the people that I engage with. And how how to best create an environment where people feel comfortable telling their stories, and how as a group we get better at listening to each other's stories. And and the last time we had a conversation somewhat like this, we really focused on listening. Um, So I'll I'll touch on it briefly. But today, I really want to focus on power in relationships and how the power in relationships who has the power and who does not really impacts how comfortable people feel within their family system. And also, communication and how power is used or not used is often generated by communication or lack of communication skills. And so I, I was really interested in exploring what what communication looks like, what power looks like in relationships, and how we can personally, individually make some adjustments in our behaviors that could help open up and expand our enjoyment of the people that are closest to us. Because it's it's amazing how quickly we tend to pigeonhole the people we're closest to and give them their roles, assign them their personality, and then respond to them in that way we believe they are over and over and over again. Like, oh, you're the funny one. So we always tell a funny joke with you. Oh, you're the smart one. So we'll ask you about school. Oh, you're the sensitive one. So we won't ask you (laughs) any questions that might make you cry. Like, or you're the one that's the performer. So you'll always have to perform with everyone. And It's comforting to assign everyone some sort of role. And we don't usually do it consciously. It's unconsciously. We tend to just give everyone their role in the family system. But the challenge is we're more than just one thing. We're many, many things. We're many, many roles. You know, when we start the show, it's wife, mother, grandmother, eavesdropper, educator. You know, I'm a sister. (laughs) I'm a friend. I'm a professor. I'm a radio host. I'm a tennis player, I'm a swimmer. There's a lot of things that, that I am that make up my constellation of a, as a human being. And every person has multiple roles that they play that make up their constellation as a human being. But oftentimes in families we can limit our understanding or even knowledge of members of our family because we consistently relate to them with that one role that we've kind of put them in and that's who they are for the rest of their life. And when people feel that they're in that one role and that place that they're going to be in for the rest of their life, they tend to stop really um, reaching out and trying to change that image. You know, when kids are young, they'll try to show off different sides of their personality. For example, I remember when my brother came home from college, I think it was his freshman or sophomore year, and he announced at the dinner table that he was a socialist now. And my parents just rolled their eyes and said, yeah, whatever, eat your dinner. <laughs> and 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 we maybe he said he was a communist, whatever he was, whatever it was, <laughs> it was just eye rolls, and everyone went on to eating their dinner. But in hindsight, what an interesting conversation that would have been to kind of parse out, like, what does that mean to you? And so I think about you know my nephew and whatever his n- new thing—he's playing flag football right now—and you know I could be easily say, oh, you're a good athlete, flag football. But how much more fun to sit and ask them, like, what is that like for you? How do you identify with it? Do you feel like an athlete? And to really expand on it so that I get to know multi-levels of his experience. Maybe I'll find out he's super competitive or maybe he just likes to be a part of a team. But we can't get there unless we first understand our own styles of communication and our own styles of relating to other people our own anxieties or uh, uh, insecurities about how we're perceived in our family system, you know, protecting ourselves from being hurt. And so if everyone comes into a family gathering, kind of protecting themselves from being hurt, it's really hard to ever change your relationship with anyone in the family. And that's not just our family, that's in our friend groups, that's in public, that's at our job, but it's so important that we, that we, Take the time as we grow and develop and mature, to do that internal—I um, don't know—an internal check, an internal inventory—to to take a look at our communication skills or our sense of who we are in a relationship, and make adjustments as necessary so that we can come into our relationships with a new lens and perspectives, because. In the world of over-therapizing everything, we've come to a place where we've allowed people to look at others as a source of problems in our relationship. You know, I don't get along with them because they're passive aggressive. I can't be in the room with them because they're narcissistic. We have to have boundaries so I can't be close to these people. Um, You know, this person triggers my abandonment issues so we can't be alone together. We have put so many barriers up in our ability to connect with others that I'm amazed any group gets together for any amount of time, especially within a family. Because we could diagnose and put up barriers in every relationship if we tried hard enough. But what would be fascinating is to do our own internal checklist and see what are ways that I could make adjustments in my reactions or behaviors uh, that might improve or actually enhance the relationship I have with others. So that's where we're going today. I have a lot of papers in front of me with lots of information, (laughs) so I'm very excited about it. But I also am really excited to hear about your thoughts or experiences with communications and power in your relationships and how that impacts your life and what kind of uh, support or information that would be helpful to you. So... This is A Conversation with a the Reluctant Therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Our number is 805-781-3875 if you'd like to be part of the conversation. You can also send me an email after the show to elizabeth at com. You can follow our show through Instagram and Facebook, and you can listen to previous shows by visiting kcbx.org and just look under the News Talk tab, which is where I think we are, but you'll find us somewhere. And there are years of shows to listen at your convenience, or if you'd like to, you can check us out through podcasts, anywhere you get your podcast, just search for a conversation with a reluctant therapist, hit subscribe, leave a review, that's always helpful, and you can listen whenever you'd like or share with others. So we're going to talk about power and communication and the joy of relationships. That's the goal today. But I'm also willing to go wherever you'd like. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX.
0: There's no way I can hear words you never say. Whatever's come between us. Keeps on getting in the way. I want to hear you laugh. Love to see you smile What I wouldn't give right now Just to hold you for a while
2: But I feel you slipping away
1: I'm Elizabeth Baird and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist and today's topic revolves around power, communication, relationships, getting ready for the holiday season. Power is an interesting thing because it's hard to describe power, it's hard to define it, but you absolutely know when you don't have it. That's the clearest way of delineating power that those that don't have power in a relationship know that they don't have the power. And Power in relationships come in different uh, ways. We see or notice power in relationships, especially in families in different ways. The primary kind of technical definition of power when it comes to family structure is the ability of an individual within a social relationship to carry out their will even in the face of resistance by others. and or the ability of one individual to change the behavior of other family members. That's the basics of family power and family dynamics. How we come to look at that power is influenced by how we were raised and how the structure was in our family of origin. And then we tend to marry someone or partner with someone who either reflects that way that we had power in our family relationship Or if that family relationship had a negative experience, if you felt like you didn't have power, you might look for someone who you can have power over. It's rare in a relationship that there's actually equal power. That's um, kind of uncommon. We talk about egalitarian or equalitarian relationships where each person feels like they're valued and have a say and have agency within the relationship. But there's usually areas within every relationship where one person has more power than another, maybe because they have more expertise. Just for a simple example, my husband has power over everything that happens outside of our house (laughs) because I have no interest, one. And two, I don't have a lot of experience building things or gardening or taking care of the yard. And so by default, that's where he has power. Even if I say, well, I think I'd like it to be different, he's like, eh, this is why we can't or no, I have a vision. Conversely, I have all the power of everything inside the home and that's kind of where my vision is and a lot around, you know, raising the kids because that was my area of expertise that he would defer to my power in that area. And also you don't want to have a power struggle in front of your children. It's not a pretty thing. So even in the most equal of relationships, there tends to be power imbalances in different ways. The time that the power imbalance gets, in, gets us into trouble is when the subordinate person starts to feel used or misunderstood or taken advantage of and then that's when you really see the power in uh, discrepancy come to the surface because a lot of couples will go along for years with an imbalance in power have a dominant partner and a subordinate partner and Some those you know we look for the opposites quite often. Some people like to have a leader and someone who has a plan and follow them, and they're comfortable with kind of enacting the plan. It works um, until it stops working, and so when it stops working, when the subordinate member and well, I'll start with this: when the subordinate member in the family or the partnership starts to feel like they're not being seen, then you start to see resentment continuous arguments, um, withdrawals, silent treatments. So when you see those patterns of behavior start to happen, that's generally a sign that there is one partner is revolting against or pushing back against a power imbalance. And they may not be able to just stand up and say, this is unfair, you need to you know, listen to me because that dynamic is so strong that it comes out in more subconscious maybe ways. Um, because rarely if you said to someone, wow, you're acting like you're subordinate in your relationship, they will, will have no idea what you're saying. They'll say, no, I'm just angry. I'm just resentful. I just am you know, tired of having to listen to the same stories over and over again. For those that are in power, they generally don't recognize the amount of power they have because people who are in power in relationships – are enacting their own story as well. That they grew up in a home where they're either encouraged to be a dominant person, they already had that kind of personality, they had that role in their family, then they got married and they had took that role on. Interestingly, not to go too deep dive in the science, but there's some science around kind of the the evolutionary part of testosterone and estrogen. And testosterone tends to make one feel like they're the caregiver and the forager and the person who needs to protect. And those that have a lot of estrogen flowing tend to be the nurturers and the caregivers uh, in other aspects of the relationship. And so in a marriage, in a partnership, when you have one person with estrogen and one person with testosterone, it kind of sets up an interesting dynamic between the person with power feeling like they need to be respected and looked up to because they have innately a fear of failing or not being a good protector or right, not being able to take care of their family. And so they almost have to be buoyed up in this way of, you know, yes, you are the master of the household. Yes, everyone looks up to you. Yes, you have all the answers because it kind of supports their ego and their need to feel like they are fulfilling their destiny. So even the person in power quite often is not secure with the power that they hold because they're just enacting a story of – fear oh my gosh what if everyone in the family saw that i wasn't a great provider or i couldn't slay the wildebeest and quite often when people feel insecure in their power they they over express who they are so quite often you'll see people in relationships who are bullying or aggressive. And aggressive in a bullying behavior quite often belies someone who underneath who is a frightened child or very afraid of losing what they love and hope they have. And the only way they feel like they can keep that relationship or hang on to that relationship is to almost kowtow or bully or control everyone into staying with them. Right, don't leave. I'm in charge. This is not don't question my authority. Or if you do question my authority, I'm going to shut you down. And so, it's tough to make adjustments within the power in relationships because rarely do people have any true understanding of what the story is they're acting out. The other part about power that's interesting is the power of least interest. And that's another social sciences uh, definition of power, that the person who is least vested in needing that relationship has the power. So think about when you're dating someone or in your marriage or the person who needs the relationship least holds the power in the relationship. And therefore, the person who needs the relationship most, whether it's economic reasons or social emotional reasons, they tend to not have the power, so they tend to find themselves in a subordinate position, and it's very difficult to switch that. Interestingly, though, in some couples, that power of least interest will shift. So in the early years of your marriage, the The testosterone, the breadwinner, the person out supporting the family tends to have the most power because they could walk away from the relationship. They still have economic security and the person at home doing the caretaking tends to have less power. But as the children grow and leave home and men start to retire, and now they're looking around at their family, that shifts quite often. And the man will look around and say, oh, I really need this relationship, but I wanna hang out with my kids. And what are you doing today, my spouse? And wives will feel empowered. It's like, hmm, I actually now could leave if I wanted to. And that shifts that power dynamic and the interactions of the couple. And then the last one, and then we'll get into communication, is the he who makes the gold makes the rules. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I am
0: very familiar with that, yes.
1: The interesting thing about the he who makes the gold makes the rules, you would think that that means whoever brings in the most income gets to make the decisions about the family. But during the 2008 recession, when three quarters of the jobs that were lost during that time were lost by men, And so at that time, many families were being supported by their wives, especially in middle America, more conservative places in the South. And what they found was even when the men in these more conservative households weren't making all the gold, they still were making the rules. And so that theory of he who brought in the most income or he or she or they who brought in the most income didn't really pan out in more conservative parts of the country, because it goes back to the power and the control part of families. So why is this all important? Well, when we have power imbalances, it usually leads to poor communication habits, because when you don't feel safe in expressing how you feel in a relationship, you start to change your behaviors, which means that you start to lose that intimacy or closeness with your partner. And when you're the dominant person in a relationship and you're not really aware that you're the dominant person, you just think everything's going your way because everyone gets along or goes along or agrees with you. So you have no clue, really, that you aren't knowing the rest of your family fully because they're filtering themselves. But for the person who's in the dominant position, they often can't express their true self because they fear ultimately being disrespected or being seen as less than or not powerful enough, right? Or not the the strong part of the family. So for my holiday gift, I'm going to talk about how you can make your own adjustments uh, to your dynamic in how you respond to members of your family. Because as I said at the beginning of the show, no one can change you. We have to make our own internal changes, especially when it comes to power and communication. It's not something that can be done externally. It's all internal. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I realize I've been chatting so much, I forgot to remind you that we welcome your calls. Our number is 805-781-3875, because I told you at the beginning, I have all these papers in front of me. I wanted to spit all this out, but I am... Excited to hear any feedback or thoughts on the topic. So it's 805 781 3875. And let's talk about poor communication and power and how the two things go together. So if you are someone who has too much power, and I don't know if too much power is the right term, but that's the way it's written. If you are someone who has too much power, here's what's happening in your relationships. Here are the signs. You have the last word in every argument. You make decisions based on your personal beliefs and preferences. You get angry whenever your partner voices their concerns about you. You expect your partner to reply to you as soon as possible, text messages or phone calls, or if you're yelling from the other room, and you never hear no from your significant other which means they might be saying no, but you never really hear it. So if those are experiences you have in your relationship, those are signs that you might have too much power and you might be missing out on getting to know how your partner really feels or how they would like things to be or how you could actually put down some of the pressure you feel in trying to be all-powerful or all-knowing or in charge of the family and actually have some more fun. Now, conversely... If you're the person who feels like they have less power in the relationship, signs that you have lost your power. One, you sometimes feel alone, even when you're with your partner. Two, you feel intimidated either physically, emotionally, or intellectually by your partner. Three, you constantly second guess yourself before you speak or in decisions that you make. Four, you feel like you walk on eggshells whenever you try to talk to your partner. Five, your mood depends on how your partner is behaving. Your self-worth is based on how your partner sees you. And you feel pressure to respond to your partner as soon as possible for fear of them getting angry. So those are internal checklists To see if you're the one holding maybe too much power in that relationship or someone who has lost their power. Now, how do we get that back? This is the challenge. Rarely does anyone give up power willingly. Rarely does someone say, you know what, I'm tired of being in charge. You can take over. Or they might say that, you can go ahead and take over. I don't want to lead the charge. But as soon as you start to take over and do something, they'll have second thoughts and say, wait, 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 I know how to do this better. Or what, you're doing it wrong, or wait, you can't you can't take this on. And so in order to get to a place where you reestablish your power, the conversation is, hey, what parts of our life Do you enjoy kind of taking the lead? And what parts of our life do you currently have the lead in that you aren't enjoying? And you can't have this conversation in the middle of an argument. You can't have this conversation late at night when you're falling asleep. But it's a good starter conversation. And because we have the holidays coming up and there's more people around, it's a good conversation to have as an icebreaker that doesn't feel as intense just speaking to your partner, but asking the group. What parts of your life do you like having agency over? I would say quickly, I feel very comfortable running the house. I know where everything goes. I don't feel comfortable if someone tells me I need to do our taxes or I need to deal with the health insurance company. Like I'm pretty clear of the areas that I feel competent and when we can talk about that in a group, almost as an icebreaker around the table, it can then fuel other conversations outside of the family dynamic and say, hey, I noticed that you said at the family dinner table that you didn't you know, really like being in charge of the healthcare piece and that felt overwhelming to you. I think that's something I could take on. And then we go from there. Now, before we jump to our little rest here, I will caveat with this. Every relationship is only as successful as the emotional maturity of the partners involved. You can't change another person, no matter how much you love them or beg them to change. You cannot wish someone to be different. You can only work on yourself. And if you chose wisely, the partner is also willing to do their work. And then you come together and make adjustments. Most couples struggle when there's an imbalance in emotional maturity, and quite often the least emotionally mature person is the one that tends to dominate the power in the relationship, and that can be a struggle. But if you're in a relationship that's just kind of in rocky patches and you know that both you and your partner are emotionally mature and wanting things to be good and assuming the best in the behaviors of your partner, many changes can be made, and we're going to talk about that. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Our number is 805-781-3875. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX.
2: Try not to abuse your power I know we didn't choose to change You might not want your power But having it so strange She said You were a hero You played the part But you ruined Her and the year Don't act like it was hard And you swear you didn't Sleeping in your clothes But now she's got to get to class How dare you And how could you will you only feel bad When they find out If you could take it all back Would you Try not to be I oh, know we didn't choose to change. You might not want to lose your power, but I've been so straight.
1: I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And thank you to my niece. Harriet for turning me on to Billie Eilish because that song uh, came through her. So I love all of my people in my family. Every one of them brings something so interesting to the table and I look forward to the conversations and getting to know them. But because I did a lot of deep diving to prepare for the show, it always kind makes me do my own internal uh, <laughs> wellness check Inventory, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, because just because I live in this space where I use these tools a lot and I teach them at school doesn't mean that I 'm an expert at applying them to my own life all the time and so when I'm reading kind of the checklist of if you you know you have too much power if you know you may have if you know you have too much power, if you have to have the last word in every argument or you make decisions based on your own personal beliefs and preferences, or you get angry whenever your partner voices his or her concerns about you. Or you never hear no from your partner. And a couple of them kind of zing me. I thought, ooh, I do get pretty defensive when Chris disagrees with me and doesn't like (laughs) the plan that I have. And I probably do respond with some defensiveness and shutting him down. And maybe I haven't been great about just hearing him all the way out because especially when I'm teaching and I'm in front of the classroom all quarter and I already kind of feel mighty, and then I come home and I think I'm also in front of the classroom and kind of mighty to my husband. And he's such a kind and forgiving person that he doesn't remind me Hey, you know I'm not a student in your class, but right. but I need to make sure that I'm paying attention to how am I carrying over these behaviors in ways that might not be perfectly helpful. So I say that because it takes courage, I think, to look at ourselves honestly and be able to recognize that there are changes we can make. Um, because rarely, when someone loves us dearly, and or maybe they're a little afraid of us. Are they going to speak up and say, that hurt my feelings, or I'm uncomfortable, or I'd like to have my thoughts be heard? And at the top of the show, I talked about interrupting, and that's what kind of kicked this off as an article that I read about in relationships, this dynamic, quite often, the masculine feels comfortable stepping in or stepping over the the feminine when they're speaking or telling a story. And they don't recognize that they're interrupting because they're used to in society having that um, appearance of authority in their work or in their relationships, you know, or just in their stature. I, I always have something interesting to say. And, and it's not, you know, it's not Uh, something that they're making up. It's the experience they've had in the world. And so in the relationships, when their partner starts talking, the feminine starts talking, and I use the feminine and the masculine because if we're in a same-sex relationship, quite often there is a masculine-feminine dynamic in some of the interactions. And so those with the kind of masculine experience of being in charge can step over and interrupt the person who tends to have the more subordinate. But what's interesting is that the person who gets interrupted often, over and over, they will roll their eyes or get angry or start to steam up and blow up and be very angry because that resentment builds up after it's like, stop interrupting me. I have a story to tell. The problem is, That frustration quite often is seen as, why are you overreacting? (laughs) Why do you need to be heard so much? Why are you dominating the room? And so that's really challenging for the person who maybe for a long time has been subordinate and kept their thoughts in or deferred to the person who has always been in charge. And now when they're trying to speak up, feeling shot down, they end up looking like the villain because they've lost their capacity to hold it in or keep it stuff down. And how they let it out becomes challenging. So if you're feeling like that in your life, that you're often interrupted or your stories aren't listened to, or you're not being heard or seen, there's a couple of simple tips. One is to use your hand. When someone interrupts you to gently and not in their face, swinging it, but just gently compensate, well, just a moment and just stop just a moment. And if they keep talking, then put the hand up again and say, I just want to finish my thought. And it may not happen the first time that the person stops interrupting, but if you're able to calmly do that often enough, they'll start to read that cue, again, if they're emotionally mature and willing to look at their own behaviors, but they'll get that cue and say, oh gosh, I'm doing that again, sorry, continue. The other tip is to say, just let me finish, I'll yield the floor in a minute to let them know that I just, I got a thought that I'm going to go. And then the third piece is before you want to tell a story, say, I have a 30-second or a two-minute story I'd like to share. And by expressing what it is we'd like from the family or from our partner or from our friend, we quite often are more successful in executing it. If we don't express what it is we want to do, what we need to say, how much time we need, and we get stepped on and then get frustrated and hold it in, that never solves it. Now, a lot of people will say, I shouldn't have to raise my hand, or I shouldn't have to say, I need five minutes, or I'd like your attention. I should just be listened to because I'm part of the family. Like, yeah, if life were that easy, great. (laughs) The problem is, it's not. And communication is our biggest weakness in almost every relationship. And the only way we can fix communication issues, there's two things. One is the self-awareness, but number two is speaking about speaking. It's called meta communication, and it's talking about what is happening. Hey, I just want to finish the story. Give me this time or I'm sorry, interrupted. Go ahead. It's your turn to talk. We have to actually set the stage and then talk. We can't just speak and expect that everyone understands what our goal is. The other thing for those that tend to get interrupted is we have to do our own self-awareness check. Maybe your stories aren't relative, relevant in the moment. Maybe they're taking a little bit too long. It's important to read the room when we start to talk and tell a story or demand everyone's attention. Are people acknowledging and looking and seem interested? Then continue with their story. But if they look away or look down or aren't giving you that nonverbal cue that they're interested, then that's a cue for us to make some adjustments in our storytelling. Because communication is always two ways. It's not just the words coming out of our mouth, but it's how people are receiving that information and how comfortable they feel. Poor communication skills show themselves in many ways, and we know we can get a sense that maybe our communication skills are at the heart of why we're struggling in our relationships if we experience uh, a few of these things. One, there are quite a few misunderstandings. If you suffer from uh, inconsistent messaging or someone always misunderstanding what you're saying or confusion or conflict, quite often you're not then being clear enough in what your stated goal is. You're not really clear enough in what it is you're trying to say. And that means you either are just speaking without intention. You don't really know why you're speaking. You're just dominating the room. Or you're not quite sure how to exchange the information you need to share. Number two when we have poor communication over and over and over again, that can lead to lack of trust. Because if we cannot feel open and honest in our communication and say what is true, and feel like what's being told to us is true, then trust erodes, and we start to feel suspicious of the other. And that leads to emotional distance. And when we feel emotionally distant, then we don't continue to share things that are important to us, intimate conversations. Um, we feel unheard and misunderstood. We emotionally withdraw, which leads to this sense of resentment. I feel lonely at my house, even though there's someone here, because I don't feel safe having a conversation about something that matters deeply with me and within me because I don't trust that my partner is really listening. Wow. Like that's a lot of painful feelings to have, and yet it's the most common group of feelings that couples and families get into because they have not done their own due diligence in understanding their communication styles. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. We're gearing up for the holiday season and uh, fine-tuning our communication skills. And our phone number is 805-781-3875. Kyle from, from the car, how are you? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I feel like I'm talking rather quickly, so I'm so glad that you called in. What's on your mind?
3: I have never heard your show before. i flipping through, picked you up, and I just want to say thank you because you were 100% on point about the topics that I've heard while I was in my car that you were discussing um, in the communication between family, spouses, friends, and just holidays, you know, the gamut, yes. I should say. <laughs> so I appreciate the topic, because I find myself in the middle of everything that you are currently talking about. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for calling. I'm glad you found us, Kyle. And I hope that you'll uh, call in whenever you're listening.
3: I actually will, and I'm going to spend some time looking you up to see if I can go back to some podcasts and how to get a little bit kind of more um, educated on the topic of your choice today.
1: Thank you so much. And I know Brad will be happy to give you information, but you can uh, find me by visiting kcbx.org, and all of my shows are up there from the last 10 years, so you can have a fiesta of listening
3: thing. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Kyle. It's been
1: great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Ah, that was just a little breather I needed. New fan. (laughs) Because I do realize I'm moving quickly because there's so many pages in front of me. So poor communication, going back to that, is not just in the words that come out of our mouth towards the other person. And we know if we're being, we ho- I hope we know when we're being rude or dismissive, but quite often we're, be- we're behaving in such a way that we don't recognize that our communication is actually harming our partners. And that's because 65 to 85% of all of our communication is done non-verbally. So you don't even have to speak those words that are dismissive or hurtful <laughs> to actually harm your relationship. All it takes is a crossing of the arms, a rolling of the eyes, a glare or stare across the room, a huffing under our breath, a clicking of our tongue. We speak volumes by not saying any words at all. And of course, the silent treatment is one of the most abusive forms of communication there is because when we refuse to speak with someone, we're basically yelling at them, you're not valuable enough to talk to. And so that internal inventory is so important because we may feel like our communication skills are excellent and that we're showing restraint by not engaging in a conversation or that I didn't yell back so I'm much more contained or in control. But the not speaking and the nonverbal messages can be just as impactful as the words that come out of our mouth. So here's a few you know, signs. Uh, this is My Jeff Foxworthy version of communication (laughs) skills. You might be a poor communicator. Uh, If you believe that your communication and relational skills are flawless, that's your first sign that you may need to adjust your style. Because generally, if we find no error or discomfort or question in how a conversation went or how we expressed ourselves, then that should be your first sign that eh, we all have something to work on and you need to do some work. If you perceive others as being dumb or dim or dense, if they cannot understand what you're trying to say or what you're telling them, then that's a sign that you actually may be the problem and what you're trying to express uh, is either being expressed poorly or not being received well. Because I, I always like to remind people that just because someone doesn't argue back doesn't mean they agree with you.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a true statement,
1: mm-hmm. and that's a dangerous place because when for someone like myself, who is definitely a, a talker, right, a speaker, and a motor and expresser, I I use words daily. That's my jam. It's I sense that it's very easy for me to steamroll over people, my family, my friends my students, you know, I can sense that. Sometimes I'll get that feedback too, that I get so hooked on, you know, the position I'm in that I'll keep steamrolling. And that's my Achilles heel and and sometimes my blind spot um, that I'm consistently tapping into and trying to work on. And if I don't go in and do that work, or if I do miss the times that I'm steamrolling, my cue is if everyone around me is nodding and smiling a lot and like, oh, this is great. This is good stuff. That's usually for me, my red flag that I'm being overbearing <laughs> because no one feels like they can disagree or jump in. So on that note, Merritt, I want you to help me. So my, my intern, Merritt is with me and does such a great job. Gabe and Merritt have been so great at doing research for the show. So thank you for that. and and having ideas. So we were going to talk about what is the goal then of our relationships? Because if power imbalances are kind of built into it and we have to recognize it or at least work with it, or if it's not working, try to make adjustments, but to recognize power always plays. And we deal with power through our communication skills. But if our communication skills are not – up to snuff, we find ourselves getting into what is called an insecure relationship, right? Is that the right term? Feeling emotionally insecure. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I always said it didn't sound right. Feeling emotionally insecure. When we don't feel secure in our relationships our attachment to our our family to our kids if if our kids don't feel safe enough in our relationships then they tend to withdraw they tend to become emotionally distant they tend to feel isolated all of those things we talked about earlier but there are things that we can do to help build more emotionally secure relationships so merit what are a few of the signs of feeling emotionally secure? How will someone know when they're in an emotionally secure relationship?
4: Yeah. So um, one of the main things, and I feel this a lot in my secure uh, the relationships where I find emotional security in, um, I feel super comfortable being 100% myself and staying true to myself mm-hmm. and um, kind of being able to show everything about me to the other person and feeling comfortable being vulnerable with them also mm-hmm. as well. Um, another key feature of an emotionally secure relationship is feeling like you are always staying present with that other person.
1: Yes. Um, Cause that's the don't, don't dwell in the past mm-hmm. because that I think happens in a lot of longer term relationships where they're still resentful of an argument from 1978 <laughs> <laughs> that never really got resolved, but you don't feel safe enough to really get resolution. And so That feeling of dwelling in the past keeps us feeling in, you know, that that emotional insecurity is a result of dwelling in the past and maybe always bringing it up. Well, in 1978, I couldn't trust you, and that was a sign that I'll never trust you again. And then number three.
4: Um, And then not seeking constant validation from the other person.
1: That's the biggest one for me. When we're looking at the difference between an emotionally secure relationship and an emotionally insecure person, so say that again. We know we're emotionally secure when we do not seek constant validation from yes. the other person. Yes. Yes. So, what's the definition? What's the? How do we know if we're not seeking constant validation?
4: Um, well, we know that we're not seeking constant, or we know when we are seeking constant validation when we are looking for reassurance from them in. A variety of different ways um and you know some reassurance in relationships is nice but a constant need is a sign of um abandonment or you know an an anxious attachment Mm -hmm. um and when you have a secure attachment you develop a um constant connection Mm -hmm. that helps you feel the bond that will remain no matter what happens in that relationship and you also um you know that you can go through different seasons in your relationship. You can be upset at each other. You can be fighting. You can be angry, whatever. But um, no matter what happens, you know that you always have that um, bond to come back to and that stable connection. Yes.
1: So there's our goals for the secure attachment is that we're not bringing up past or dwelling in the past and feeling that old resentment always on the surface. Like, And then number two, being able to be true to yourself, being able to speak your truth and what you're feeling and feel unjudged. But that third one, that needing constant validation, somehow that rings with me on deep levels for many reasons. One is I can't tell you how many times I must have asked my husband while we were dating, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you still like me? Are we good? For a long time when we were young, because remember, we started dating when I was 19. So I brought a lot of abandonment, anxiety, feelings, I think, into that early relationship. Um, And so needing that constant reassurance. But conversely, because we do that internal checklist, my husband over the years recognized that he wasn't really great at the validation making me feel like this was a safe place and that if we had a fight or an argument that he wasn't just going to bail and so we both made those adjustments that was a big conscious growth on our part to say I'm feeling like I'm constantly needing you to say you you love me because I for some reason I'm not feeling like it's true and he's saying for some reason I don't allow myself to make you feel comfortable. So it was a big conversation at the time, but that shift, that subtle shift really made huge change in the the quality and groundedness of our marriage.
0: My question about that, I mm-hmm. just as the male perspective here. Mm-hmm. Did did he when he mentioned this to you, mm-hmm. did he also say that he had his own fear of, you know, vulnerability and that kind of thing built into um, you know, kind of not expressing that support, um, you know, in a more outward way.
1: I, if I recall, because it was probably back in 1986, but it's been a long time. But as recalling the relationship, thinking about both of our families of origin, where we grew up in, his family of origin really weren't expressive about who they were, like a lot of I love you's and you're important to me and this relationship matters. So he didn't grow up in a family system where that kind of reassurance was even part of it. And so it didn't really occur to him that it was important until it was so annoying to have me constantly feeling like I needed that. They right. <laughs> like, well, I wonder you know, where, where do we find that balance? Yeah. So in the last couple minutes today, I wanna leave with a couple other things to think about. Um, As we're moving into the holiday season, because I started off talking about wanting my nieces and nephews and parents and brothers and sisters to feel like they are seen and have a place in the family gathering and that their stories are heard. And so as we go into our own internal checklist, our own internal inventory, what are some ways that you can adjust your behaviors to reach out to and build a better alliance with just one member of your family at the next gathering, maybe two, and that might mean looking at the relationship you've had and some uh, beliefs you have about who they are and the role you see them in. You know the story you tell yourself about who that person is, and and try to make adjustments to that story. Get to know a different part of them because, as I said at the top of the show, we all are many, many stories. All of us are many stories, but we tend to in our families only allow each person to be one story or one narrative or one personality. And so for this holiday season, take the time to get to know some different parts of different members of your family. And that will require you putting aside some of your own preconceived beliefs or sense maybe of being dismissed before or maybe being hurt or concerned about being misunderstood. That That's the courage part. How can I use my communication skills to connect? And the best way to get there is to start with this. I value our relationship. I want to be close with you. And so I may say something awkward or not get it totally right, but my intention is to get to know you better and to have a better relationship. So here I go. Here's my question. That's meta communication. Before you start these conversations, speak with intention. I want to be close with you. I value our relationship. I love being a part of this family. And I may not do it right. But this is going to be my attempt at at us getting closer. And please let me know if something I say throws you off because I want to be better at this relationship.
0: Well, wow, that's, that's powerful.
1: That's the key, Brad. People think that a lot of this is rocket science, but really relationships come down to having the courage to be intentional in what it is you're trying to do. And usually what we're trying to do is to love and feel loved. And to be loved and to love, we have to be willing to say, I value you and want to do better. This is important to me. So this has been A Conversation with a Reluctant Therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you can listen to previous shows or this show by visiting kcbx.org. I know Brad will have it up in just a few minutes after we're finished today. You can podcast the show. You can send me a message through Instagram or Facebook. You can send me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to having a conversation next Tuesday at 2. Until then, thank you for listening and supporting Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX.
0: You and me, we always sweat and strain. You look for sun, I look for rain. We're different people, we're not the same. The power of the sun. I look at treetops. You look for caps above the water where the waves snap back. I flew around the world to bring you back. It was the power of your heart. I looked at you, your sleepy heart was shining through, wispy cobwebs that were breathing through, the power of the heart. I looked at you, you looked at me, I thought of the past, you thought of what could be, I asked you once again to marry me.